Welcome to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire, a series that digs deep into the life and works of one of the greatest novelists of all time. Hi everyone. Today's guest has written some of the most exciting and daring screenplays I've ever seen. I first became aware of him some 20 years ago when I went to the cinema to see a film called Dirty Pretty Things, which follows the lives of immigrants living in London, trying to make their way in a society where they are invisible. Fast forward to today, and his credits include the hugely successful Peaky Blinders, Taboo, and SAS Rogue Heroes. He also adapted a dark and thrilling A Christmas Carol with Guy Pearce as Scrooge, and has now reimagined Great Expectations in a new series led by Olivia Colman. I'm thrilled to welcome the inimitable Stephen Knight. Stephen, welcome to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire. It's lovely to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm so thrilled. And, and you're here right at the moment where your new reimagining of Great Expectations is out, yeah. out there in the world. Um, Something that I find astonishing about you, and I didn't realise this until prepping for this interview, is that you are the son of a blacksmith. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Which is why Great Expectations has always resonated for me. And the difference is that Pip decides he doesn't want to become a blacksmith. Uh, I, my dad used to take all of us out, all my brothers and me, uh, and we used to be like shoeing, not putting the shoes on, but taking the shoes off and dealing with the horses and doing the forge and all that. And I wasn't very good at it. So it was the opposite to Pip. It was like, at that age, I really wanted to be successful at being a blacksmith because that's what our dad expected us all to do. Wow, that's an amazing inversion, isn't it? And and so the, the detail in the first episode where Joe and Pip are saving nails, is that straight from your own experience? Yeah, yeah, then? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, money was tight. Um and even though iron is not expensive, uh, you know there was a there was procedures that you followed, and yeah. and I mean it's a it's a wonderful thing. It's very it looks great. It's very romantic. And I remember used to cook breakfast on the forge and all of that stuff. It's beautiful, but it's really brutally hard work. So I do know why Pip decided he wanted to be a gentleman. Yeah, and, and it's very interesting. I mean, I feel like with all of your work, there's nothing left to chance. Everything feels very intentional. And Pip at the very beginning is quoting Shakespeare. But he's quoting Malvolio's line about be not afraid of greatness. And of course, in Malvolio's case, his ambition leads to total disaster for him. Yes. Are you baking in then into the episode a sense of Pip's ambition is actually yeah. a bit dangerous? Well, I, I think in, the, in, in Dickens' work, especially in Great Expectations, there's always a sense of foreboding. Mm. There's always a feeling that this is going to go badly. You know, and and all the way through the setup with uh, Miss Havisham, you know this isn't going to this isn't going to end well. So I, I do like to plant those things in there to to for those who care. But where do you begin? Where do you start when it's a classic novel, unlike an original series you're putting together? Where do you begin in terms of deciding what to keep in and what to cast out and and all of that? Well, I think the important thing is not to be afraid of it. And the way to do that is to know something very obvious, which is no matter what you do in your adaptation, the book is still there. The book, it doesn't affect the book. The book is there. So if someone wants to read the book, the book exists. You're not chipping away at a monolith. You're just taking a photograph of it or you're doing a painting on it. An abstract painting on it is probably more accurate. So what I tend to do, I knew the book anyway, and then I read it again, um, I haven't watched any adaptations of it. 
I mean, I've watched them in my life, but I didn't do that deliberately for this. And my only analogy would be, for me, adapting something. It's like reading the book in the day and then going to sleep and dreaming about it at night. So it's related to the book because it's inspired by what you've read, but different things happen. And the way I tend to write is I do tend to leave it to a sort of subconscious process rather than being consciously outlining things and deciding how it's going to go. So I do try to apply that even to an adaptation. And and it's not out of any sense that Dickens got it wrong or there was a mistake or it's better this way. It's just the way I respond to it. You know, it's the impression it has upon me and how the, and the other aspect would be sort of imagining what Dickens would do if he was writing now in the sense that he had the liberty to write about things he couldn't write about at the time. Yeah, that's so interesting. And is and is that process, you know, is it is it character driven? Is it that you, you oh, get, yeah, yeah. yeah, I feel like it must be. Yeah. And so th- these characters walk about in your subconscious and they make these demands on you. Good demands, though. <laughs> and, and, like, when it works, it's wonderful. And and you know, you just you know who Jaggers is, or you have your idea of who Jaggers is and who Pip is and what their ambitions are. And you just sort of let them meet and and interact with each other. Um, and I sometimes read Dickens and wonder if he knew at the beginning where he was going. Because I don't, I think that, you know, when I start writing anything, I don't, I don't know where it's going to go. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, sometimes the twists in Dickens are so unexpected. I wonder if he expected them. Yes, prob- probably not. Actually, I mean, and he always ke- keeps alive that spontaneity, doesn't he? And, you, and, you, and in his manuscripts, he's got all these sort of crossings out and everything. Yeah, yeah. I was interested to also know because I've not looked at any of your scripts, I've not read any, as in read any, any of them. Yeah, yeah. With, I mean, with this astonishing uh, setting in this episode, with the aerial shots of the flats, the marshes, and everything, do you write a lot of those in, or do you leave that to somebody else to sort of decide? Where, where are you on that? Uh, I do write. I, I write more direction than most people. I think, which makes the scripts longer, which makes everybody freak out because they think it's too long. And I always have to say, no, no, no. It's just that I've got loads of direction in there. Um, so I do write a lot. But then what happens is the director, when you get to the location, or when you're selecting a location, when the director's doing that, they will come and say, you know we don't have a lime kiln there, but we have this amazing twisted dead tree that looks incredible. Could they meet there? And you look at the photos and you think, well, that would look great. Yeah. So you are, I, I think you should be subordinate to the beauty of it rather than the the letter of the law of it. And in terms of the modern sensibilities, which is in all of your work, actually, that I've I've ever seen, especially in The Christmas Carol as well, but also in here, what I get from from this is that deep, sense of shame and self-loathing with regard to empire and the Mm. characters that are sort of buying into it and trying to get things out of it Mm. could you tell us a bit more about that yeah i mean i i I tend not to be one of those people who rampantly condemns the empire the empire happened empires have always happened the roman empire happened and they happen as a consequence of battles that are won but more often economic decisions and um, sort of boldness in a way. This is a tangent, but I've been with film crews when you go to a place like Mauritius or somewhere, and the film crew turns up, and you're so certain of what you want to do and what you want to get, and it makes no sense. 
to the people who are there, that you want to move a tree. But there is something about, and of course, you've got money and you're paying people, but suddenly it's like colonising. It's like your concept, which is completely alien to the place, takes over the town or the village or whatever, and it becomes normal and it's not normal. And I think that maybe Empire, and you read about these people, they're 25, 26, a married couple, and they go off to the Far East and run a plantation, you know. They only did that because they were so sure of themselves. It was partly religion, I think. But they were so certain that they were right. It's a really odd thing, I think, now to conjure with. So it's this idea that here's this thing happening. And, it, you know, it's not – I mean, in East India Company, you could say it's very, very organised and deliberate. But I think a lot of it was individual decisions, little companies going out there and doing stuff. And the consequence was awful. And obviously the ultimate consequence of it was um, slavery. And what I find difficult to do is for all of that, for having said all of that, I find it difficult to write about that era without having reference to it. It would be a bit like writing something set in Johannesburg in the 60s and not mentioning the past. You know, it's very difficult to do unless you're very selective. Yeah. So I prefer to think it's not me banging on about empire. It's more that if you go there to this period at this time, it's everywhere. It's what you know. It's it's got to be part of it because it's absolutely everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, also, but I, I do feel that as a Brit, you know, there's a cultural amnesia, isn't there? Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't. I don't know if you were taught about the empire at school, but I, I absolutely wasn't. It was Tudors, and then we jumped yeah. to the First World War, pretty much. Yeah, but I, I also think you know, this, this, it's a much more complex. It, like my mum used to tell me that when she was a kid, she used to walk. I mean, they had no. They were absolutely poor as hell in small heaps and they didn't have enough food and all that. And she'd walk to school with no shoes on, no shoes. And they'd sit in the classroom and the teacher would show a map and most of it was pink and the teacher would say, all of the pink belongs to you. And it didn't belong to my mum. Do you know what I mean? It's not like these individual people in Britain were lording it and swanning around and being rich. They were just as poor as anybody else, you know. The system didn't it wasn't like the British people. It's There was a system that affected everyone. And I think the sooner people get to understand that things like empire, they are about race, but they're also about class. And that's why I'm really interested in Great Expectations, because I think that's a book about class, which is so unfashionable now. Yeah. Talk about, you know, all the divisions of gender and race, but the, the idea of the division of class, which I think is really, really, really significant in the UK. I think in America it's different, but in the UK it's very significant. Um, and it's, it was interesting to to write something about that because, you know, when I was growing up, politics was about class. Yeah. And in terms, in terms of that background, could you have imagined as a little boy with your own expectations, could you mm. imagine you'd be where you are today? No, absolutely not. I mean, my ambition was to work somewhere where you didn't get wet when it rained. That was pretty much it. Although on locations, on locations, no, exactly, I did not achieve <laughs> my ambition. That's very true. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm the youngest of seven kids, and my mum was a cleaner, and my dad was a blacksmith, and there was no expectation of doing anything other than what all my mates ended up doing, which is factories and, and building. And they're happy as anything; they have great lives. I'm not saying they don't, but the expectation was was not there to to do and so when where did dickens first arrive 
in your life then you, you know you're obviously a bright kid and you like to read i, I guess and and, and it, dickens was was a feature for you it was a couple of things that we used the bbc used to do um really good adaptations on sunday afternoon probably in the 60s and 70s and the scenery would move around and you know it was really low tech but they, they used to get the best actors and the performances were really good and going back to class you'd see working class people not being idiots in that whereas if you looked at the, the sitcom that followed it or the drama that went before it you were either a criminal or or a joke you know um and just it made me but that didn't lead me to the books what happened led me to the books is i had a the brother who eventually became a blacksmith um used to go to second-hand book because he was very bright and he used to go to second-hand bookshops and bring books because there were no books in the house and he started bringing all these books back because they were second-hand it's so random and it'd be like 19th century science books and the fairy queen by edmund spencer and shakespeare and, and dickens so you'd see this title and you start reading and it's like oh, the smell and the smell of the books is very interesting you know that moldy i love it that smell of an old book and just reading it in a in a way because for me it kept you you're racing to the dialogue in dickens for me when especially when i was a kid you're waiting for the line because the line's going to bang it's going to tell you what's going on you know and then you get the description and then the line the dialogue and the dialogue is just i think that's where that's why i think dickens is would now be a screenwriter is that it's the dialogue that is just amazing. Yeah. And do, do you remember the moment you first read Great Expectations? I don't know. I, I remember the moment I first read it. It just became part of my consciousness quite early. On this project, and as with, with other FX projects, you're you're also a producer, aren't you? And so you're are you involved very much then in in the casting of, of, of this adaptation? Yeah. I mean the casting is a is a collaborate it's a bit of a sort of a veto system where there's a group of people who are making the choice and if somebody really doesn't think this is right then it sort of acts as a veto not always um but we keep we kept getting first choices to say yes which was fantastic and i mean the real challenge is finding the kid Mm. always always always. um because especially episode one because it's episode one a lot is hanging on the performance of, of Pip, but he's so good. It's brilliant. Yeah, Tom Sweet, isn't it, as Pip? Yeah. yeah he's excellent. He's excellent. And, and with these characters, I mean, people that know Great Expectations, they can enjoy it because they have a sort of a little foreknowledge. People that yeah. don't will, of course, enjoy it. But what I love about this is the fact that you make the characters a puzzle again. You make us see them with fresh eyes. So I think I think immediately the Gargeries. So Joe yeah. Gargery... He's not. Um, he's not yeah. naive. He's he's yeah. he's very present and he's very switched on. And yeah. and Mrs. Joe Gargery is Sarah Gargery. Yeah. So how did you set about there um, filling she, out? She was the most challenging and interesting one. The one I'm most pleased with actually, because in the book she's pretty irredeemable. You know, and she's constantly beating Pip, and she's always beating him, and and. I just wanted to think of a way that, but then there's mention of her food, about her food is really nice. And I thought, well, maybe that's what it is. is she doesn't know how to show affection. But, and this is what Joe says. She, he says, you taste that, you'll taste love in there. And that sort of cracks it for her. And then she laughs and they have a bit of a joke. And then, they'll, you know, it's like that um, 
Tolstoy said all happy families are the same, but all unhappy families are different in different ways. Um, you know, the, the unhappy family has all, all this complexity to it. And I just really wanted to give her, and she breaks the cane and puts it on the fire, just as he's betraying her, you know, and, and she's trying to be known. So I, I did want to do that. I didn't really want her to be the the emblematic character that she is in the book. Because I think Dickens is really sort of saying about the way children are treated and the yeah. beat children and stuff. But I wanted, and that, you know, the, those moments I thought were really good. Yeah, they're, they're excellent because also something else that really jumped out with your adaptation is the fact that in the book we see everything everything through Pip's yeah. eyes, either as an adult or as a child, but because it's through Pip's eyes, we don't always get the fully yeah. rounded. Um, but what I love about Sarah Gardner is that moment where she tries not to laugh. Yeah. That, 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 I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I, I was really pleased with how that turned out because that was really important to because it's so early to do that really early that she's been really horrible and then she's not and she's nice. And, and I mean, the point about it being Pip's point of view is absolutely right because you have to bear in mind that he's quite a flawed character and his perceptions and his point of view isn't always right. We, and he admits it later. So when he's talking about how terrible everything is, it probably is, but it not, may not be that. Terry. It may not be as terrible. You know what I'm saying? That, that, yeah. that is from his point of view. So if you're objective, you might find, and, and you know, Joe, he sees Joe, he's embarrassed about Joe in later years because he's, he's a blacksmith and he's not educated. And maybe in his memory, he's seen him as far more of that than he actually was. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's like just because he just because he speaks in a certain dialect, which Dickens writes beautifully, doesn't mean he's an idiot. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's that childhood thing. It's that adolescent thing of being ashamed of your parents, isn't it? Embarrassed yes. by them. Yeah, that yeah. Thing, I think there's a line in the original that it's a terrible thing to be ashamed of home, which of course, yeah. when you are a small boy, you can be very easily. And then when you yeah. become an adult, you really yeah. understand. But it's odd, isn't it? I know Sarah Gardry or Mrs. Joe Gardry can be yeah. irredeemable yeah. in the book, but I've always felt slightly sympathetic towards her, actually, yeah. especially after what happens to her yeah. with Orlick and, and yeah. all of that. So it's yeah. really, and I really was really sort of delighted mm. with, with that sort of yeah. way of seeing her um i have to say i think that uh ashley thomas as jaggers is absolutely extraordinary as well I've, I'm, and in our conversation i think we're we're allowed to talk about the first two episodes but he just yeah. the way he sort of oh, i mean where did you begin with him it, i mean a lot of it is him uh, some of it is costume the costume is amazing i think but he was perfect for that role i mean he's just he's nothing like that in real life he's just such a force when he comes on the screen and just takes it over. And I think that's what Jaggers has got to be. He's got to be. I mean, I, I think of Jaggers as representing London, really. Right. Um, you know, because he brings Pip to London. But he's like London. He's amoral. He's motivated by money, you know. But there are little alleyways that are quite beautiful. So there's elements to, to Jaggers where we find out he's not all bad. Oh, you see, but that's so interesting. It's so interesting you say that because I, I, he's, he's again, he's a puzzle. I can't work him out. And I'm sort of thinking, is he, because he takes a shine to Pip, doesn't he? He yeah. seems to take him under his wing. Yeah, he does. And um, it, it, it's sort of trying to find the the reality of a bad person, you know. And I believe that, that there are exceptions, but I think Dickens either loves, likes, or forgives all his characters, and he at least forgives them. And you feel the forgiveness in the way that he dis- 
Right. There's a sort of amusement sometimes at the, the larger-than-life bad characters that's almost like re- not redeems them but forgives them for what they are um, and suggests that maybe it's a consequence of, of where they're from. I think he couldn't help himself. I mean, Compasson, you could say, is not redeemable, but... I, and I, I love what you're you're doing there with Compasson and Magwitch. I mean, that's brilliant because in the book, Compasson is obviously a little bit a bit of a gentleman and a bit sort of yeah, yeah. fear for, afraid. Yeah. But yeah. he he just this one this, this this big sort of clash between the two of them is is fantastic. How did you where did that come from for you in your mind? Well, it felt to me, and I can't remember what the line was that made me think it, but that in Dickens's mind, this was a. a, a, a battle that would go on forever beyond the grave these two forces were always going to be fighting so uh it, it's not one chasing the other even though it sort of is um across england and australia it's you know they they um they're, they're destined to always fight yeah but they're more equally matched i mean Compasson yeah. can really oh he's yeah he's a nasty piece of work yeah but, yeah you know he has to be i think because of the way of what he does yeah and uh, I think Magwitch in the first episode describes himself as a just cause and Compasson as a lost cause, yeah. which I think is so great. I mean, what you do with your characters is you seem to, you just throw it open at the very start. I think you've already mentioned that. And I think that's incredibly powerful, the way they just kind of display themselves. And so Biddy in that first episode, mm-hmm. you know, what, what we, we read quite a few pages before we work out what Pip isn't seeing. But we yeah. see it in that first episode, don't don't we? That yeah, show. yeah. I mean, everything has to. Um, most things have to come more quickly, I think, on the screen. But um, you know, the the, the 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 philosophical dilemma with Biddy is, and with the whole book is, is Dickens saying, "Look, you're a blacksmith's son. Know your station. Biddy's perfect for you. You should be shooting horses." Or is he saying? Isn't it awful? Here is this boy who's so smart and he can't escape. Um, you know, and so the acceptance of Biddy or the love for Biddy or Biddy's love for him, is it uh, a poisonous thing that's trying to drag him back, which, you know, it could be, or is it the natural thing that he should be accepting? I think in Dickens it favours the idea that it's the natural thing he should be doing and that Estella is beyond him but then you know you have to remember that in in the book Estella is adopted she's not from a, you know a, a privileged background herself yeah and of course Olivia Coleman as Miss Havisham so how how soon into this project did you think we've got to get her in for Miss Havisham well we wanted her from the beginning and then I've written I mean you don't get her without providing scripts so I think I've written I've either written all of them or three of them um and then when we knew we got her, I could then go back and make changes to sort of, a, a, um, you know, to take advantage of what you've got that reason. Yeah. And, and in terms of betrayal, was, the, was there a, a backwards and forwards about how she was going to look and, and, and all of that? And Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult because it's been done so many times. But the idea was, and I think Olivia said um, that she really got it when we were talking about that she's she's not dusty and dry she's rotting mm. so it's quite damp it, and the house is sort of rot it's still alive it's still organic and i think a lot of times she's depicted as being like dry and and dusty and dead mm. she's not she's still alive and it's just just rotting 
the whole thing is rotting, which is much more uh, sort of worse, really. But that's that's how she's that's how she is. Well, that's very interesting you say that because I I saw that when they approach when they go into Satis' house, the whole house, like you said, it's not falling and it's not all collapsing in ruin. It's actually pretty well furnished. And then you, when you get to the the center where you find Miss Havisham, then you start to see the decay in the and yeah. And this nature is coming in and taking it all back. Yeah, yeah. So there's this most enormous tree, isn't there, around the, the staircase? Where did, where did that come from? But the, I wanted it to look like nature had. After when you think about, it, if you left your house completely, didn't do anything for however many years, nature would reclaim it bit by bit. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I just think it's more interesting that here's this person who's trying to keep the world out, but the world is getting in. And you'll see in episode five or six that it comes in a very spectacular way. Oh, <laughs> like, okay. This, 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 we're in spoiler territory here. This is fun. This is fun. Okay. <laughs> Great. Um, Stephen, this has been so wonderful to talk to you. And, and I just, just to finish, I, I wondered, are you already thinking of the next potential Dickens adaptation? Yes, it's between two choices, but I'm not allowed to. If I say it, it will sound like an announcement, but it's it's one of two really good big. Moments. Okay, but they all. Well, on that very very That's tantalizing fun. note, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Such it was a pleasure. a pleasure to do. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Charles Dickens' A Brain on Fire. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to make a small donation towards the costs of producing them, please follow the link at the bottom of the description and you can make a donation there. Every coffee you buy makes a huge difference. Thank you ever so much and see you next time.